Hello and welcome back to this week's episode on Amplify. I'd like to contextualize this episode by putting forth a few facts and figures. More than a quarter of 100,000 species assessed by the IUCN are threatened with extinction. The direct causes of biodiversity loss are habitat change, direct exploitation through fishing, hunting, logging, etc., pollution and climate change. Our emissions are still on the rise. Global rise of CO2 emissions per year from fossil fuels and land use have shown no signs of slowing down despite over 30 years of climate negotiations. CO2 concentrations are at a record high of 411 parts per million, which is a 45% jump since pre-industrial levels. Air pollution is responsible for 4.2 million deaths and most of these occur in low to middle income countries. These deaths are largely preventable by using modern technologies such as cleaner fuels or electricity to replace inefficient solid fuel burning cookstoves or solar powered lights instead of kerosene lamps. Drought and scarcity is exacerbated due to climate change as an estimated 3.6 billion people live in areas that are potentially water scarce at least once a month per year. Unpredictable water cycles affect agricultural production while rising temperatures translate into increased water demand in agricultural sectors. Needless to say that this then brings to fore the issue of food insecurity. The impact of these changes will be distributed unevenly with the greatest risks experienced by the poor and marginalized, many of whose livelihoods will be threatened. And wealthier communities will also be affected, albeit slightly differently, where changes in ecosystem functions, extreme weather events, and more importantly, the social and economic consequences of climate change are things that they will have to address. The policies and decisions made today will influence outcomes over the remainder of this century and beyond, and youth today have a large stake in this future. It is with these facts that children and teenagers across the globe are marching out onto the streets to make their voices heard. Whether it is Jamie Margolin, who founded the movement Zero Hour in Seattle at the age of 15, or a continent over Greta Thunberg, who at the same age started skipping school to strike for climate action outside the Swedish parliament in Stockholm. Or back home in Manipur, Lisipriya Kangujam, who at eight years old is tirelessly campaigning to have climate change as a school subject across the Indian curriculum. This week, we're looking at one of the largest global movements to talk about the power of protest, resistance, and regenerative culture. this week's episode of Amplify where we are speaking to Shikhar Agarwal who is the founding member of Extinction Rebellion India as well as the founding member of Extinction Rebellion's local chapter here in Mumbai. So hi Shikhar and thank you so much for joining us. Hi, hi Sanchi. Right before we begin I would like to say I'm one of the founding members not the founding member. Okay yeah. That's, yeah, uh, one yeah. of the founding members, yes. <laughs> okay, we will bear that in mind. Can you please start off by telling us all about what Extinction Rebellion is and how you came to be involved with it? Okay, I think the way in which I will describe Extinction Rebellion is probably not the way in which most people will describe it. Extinction Rebellion is essentially an idea that grew out of a few social scientists in the UK 
where they realize that we are running out of time to really make systems change happen in order to prevent extinction of humans. I think it started off mostly as a human-oriented thing, but ultimately it's, the, it's, it's, a, it's a rebellion against all extinction because the current system is, is, it has led us to the sixth mass extinction that's happening right now. So basically it, it was an idea that grew out of the UK by social scientists where they realized that civil disobedience is the only way in which we can get our political leaders to listen to us and to enact the changes that are needed to avoid catastrophe, to avoid societal breakdown. And from there, this was in around 2017, I think, from there it, in 2018, it actually became a movement where they started off with like blocking stuff in the UK. And between now and then, it's, it's not even been one and a half year, but it has spread to more than 65 countries. And mm-hmm. what Extinction Rebellion means now is a global movement, or not just one movement, but like a, a collective of different movements, which are all fighting for systems change in their various ways. So what Extinction Rebellion means to, means to someone in India might be very different to what it means to someone in the Netherlands, where in the Netherlands, it's a movement which gives you you know, where you have a community and you meet up regularly and you can travel around the country and do yeah. actions. And in India, it might be something very different where it's more about spreading knowledge and working with local contractors or helping grassroots communities become more resilient. Yeah. So, yeah. Like, how did you cross paths with this movement? And what was your interaction level like with Extinction Rebellion? before you sort of took the reins and decided to, you know, move to India and, and be one of the founding members of this movement? So I was in the Netherlands for a semester of exchange last year. In yeah. January 2019, I went there. And before that, I, I'm a student of the university in Singapore. And in Singapore, as most of you might not know or might know, activism or outright resistance or criticism of the government is illegal. I had been itching to be an activist for quite a while because of the education that I had been receiving at my university in Singapore, which is a liberal arts college. So I went to the Netherlands with one of the main purposes of becoming an activist, an environmental activist, and doing something that actually makes a difference. So when I got to the Netherlands, I I think within three weeks of arriving, someone from the Amsterdam group came to my university in Utrecht and gave a talk. It's called Heading for Extinction and What to Do About It. It's the talk that they give everywhere around the world in different languages and different formats. And yeah, basically that was about uh, end Feb, I think 28th Feb or something. Mm -hmm. And that's how I got involved. Like like, right the next day I joined the National Actions and Logistics team and yeah, started attending calls, meetings and got involved. And so I became part of the national organization or organizing team first and then yeah. I helped start up something in the local group of Utrecht. Utrecht, I'm still not sure how to pronounce it. And That's fine. Then, I'm sure we can yeah. have like some Dutch listener pitch in later telling us how to correctly pronounce it. But go That's, on. So yeah, I got involved and then slowly, slowly I think it was an exponential increase in my involvement. So uh, by the time we had like the first international rebellion, which was in April 2019, I was the one giving the declaration of rebellion on the first day in The Hague. And from that, uh, slowly, slowly, I became more involved internationally as well, because since it's a movement that grew out of Europe, I went to a couple of international European meetings and got to know more rebels from across the continent. And that's 
it was second of these meetings where I decided that this is something that needs to start happening in the rest of the world as well. And since I'm an Indian, I kind of felt like it's my duty to take the movement back to India and try to start it up. Also yeah. because my college allows us to like take a year off and, and pursue something we are passionate about. Yeah. That's how I started, yeah, ended up here and now. Can you tell us a bit more about your experiences uh, with Extinction Rebellion in Netherlands and how they differed or how they were perhaps a little bit similar to the experiences that you've had in India with XR? Yeah, I would say it's actually, in terms of manifestation, it's very different in terms of the core feelings or core attributes. It's very same. So in the Netherlands, my activities involved, you know, organizing a lot of activism is organizing. It's not really going out on the streets. A lot, like majority of it is organizing and making sure that we are, you know, doing something worthwhile and we can get action, we can get people together and get stuff done. So yeah. a lot of my work was organizing meetings, basically getting people mm. to show up, getting like inspiring people to do something, basically kind of being like a project manager as they have it in capitalist <laughs> companies. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, and I think in activism also they just organizers so that was a lot of it but in terms of what it meant and also because because i'm an indian so i couldn't actually take part in any of the activities that would put me at risk of deportation or something so yeah organizing talking to people creating connections leading chants in like in protests that were not illegal ideating about different actions that could be done to capture the government's attention that that was the actual work and then it was for me, it was also much more about finally finding a community that I could like completely be myself around at all times. Yeah. Because for me, Extinction Rebellion is a family. And no matter where or who someone is, if if they have if they have accepted that Extinction Rebellion is something that they are part of and they believe in it, I consider them family. And so in the Netherlands, basically it was like having a huge family that you can be yourself around and talk to and feel supported and not feel like you're the only one who cares about what's happening to this to this species and to this planet. It was a lot about having a support group that you could do things with and make a difference. And yeah. so comparing that to India, it's I mean, in, in terms of the support group and in terms of having a family, that's what was similar. That's what XR is for, I mm -hmm. think, for most of us rebels around the world. But in terms of the activities in India and Mumbai, it's been different in the sense that you can't do demonstrations because India is overrun with demonstrations every day. There used to be hundreds before we had a lockdown. And India has a very rich history of protesting and it hasn't achieved much whole-scale systems change. So instead, in Mumbai or in, in India, a lot of the work revolved around figuring out how can we actually capture the attention of the common people. And so... Yeah creating like artistic protests or more subtle ways of disrupting the status quo like something that we were trying to do recently is there's a community here in Mumbai that is a victim of extractivism of sorts like they live next to the beach and their land has been taken over and stuff like that so we were trying to do an intervention to a give them tools like there's something we do called a people's assembly which is a yeah. way of self-determination in a way where we give people the knowledge and the information to make decisions for themselves 
in a, in a well-informed way. So bringing that in and also regenerative cultures is another thing that's a big part of XR, one of the biggest where we acknowledge that within a movement or on this planet, capitalism has, has alienated us, not just from ourselves, but also from each other and has made us extremely individualistic. So regenerative cultures is a way of bringing back the love between people and for people for themselves and to create communities that are resilient in the long term. That Because we as Extinction Rebellion also realized that in many of the countries, it's there's no more victory. Like you can't change the laws or you can't get the government to do what's right in any sort of reasonable time frame. So yeah. it's also more a rebellion against extinction in the sense that enhancing community resilience, getting people to trust each other more, creating connections where they don't exist, making information and resources more accessible. So yeah, that's kind of the big difference, I think. In the, in the global Northwest, it's more about how much damage can we still limit through policy reform. And I feel like in the global South, it's more about let's start preparing for the next world. And it's very evident now with the COVID-19 crisis that that is true. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so that, that that's like a lot of, now I have a lot of questions because you, because you spoke yeah. about, <laughs> you spoke about the global North, you spoke about the global South, you talked a little bit about community. And I think I'm going to start off with that point. Do you think it is that feeling of solidarity, that feeling of belonging, that community spirit that you said was particularly important to you? Like it was a, it was a very intrinsic part of what made you feel like you were a part of XR. Do you think that is something that resonates with people who then decide to be involved in this movement? It's an interesting question. I would say that it's not something that is uniform. I think for many people, it is the case uh, when they join this movement and they experience what it means to be part of this movement, how it's very different from any other communities that they might have been part of, how we prioritize you know, self-care and conflict resolution and being nice to each other and yeah. keeping our, you know, like no matter how different we are, as long as we care about systems change, you know, that's what we commonly believe in. But also, because a lot of people in XR are very strong-minded and everyone has a lot of ideas or very strong ideas about what systems change means, in many instances, it does lead to a lot of conflict as well. So, yeah, I, I would say that for when people initially join, for sure, I think something I've heard from almost everyone who joined and who really became part of XR Mumbai was that, yeah, like this is a community where I feel like, okay, I'm not crazy. Because in many of the global South countries, because there is a general apathy for the larger picture, like people are experiencing the effects of the crisis in many ways, but there's still humongous gap in terms of really understanding how it's all interconnected and how it connects to our economic system, which is exploitative and, you know, things like that. Yeah. Okay, I'd like you to consider this for a moment. In India, the hunt for better incomes, for rising incomes, drives rural residents from the villages to the city. And this process is accelerated by climate-induced uncertainty within the agriculture sector. This urbanization, in turn, has an impact on the availability of water. 
And there are three aspects to this, right? There's the environmental aspect, the economy, and the people. There's also another statistic, which is that desertification, land degradation, and drought cost India about 2.5% of its GDP in 2014-2015, according to India's Environment Ministry. Now, my question is, the debate around climate change tends to focus a lot on the human welfare aspect of it. But do you think that the economic aspect of climate change could be a more compelling argument for skeptics to jump on the bandwagon? I would say that one thing that we take as a, as a sort of qualification for any activism within XR is that not everyone is going to join us and we don't need everyone to join us. And trying to get people on board that unfortunately have been part of the system for so long or have been so manipulated by it that they are at the current moment not able to or willing to understand the reality only frustrates and takes a toll on us. So I personally think that it's better to focus energies on those who are able to join and contribute because anyway, you only need a small committed bunch of people to change the world. So that's one response to that. But of course, at the end of the day, it's about societal change. And at the end of the day, you do have to, or maybe not day at the end of the millennium, maybe you do have to get people to, to understand what you're fighting for sooner or later. And especially in a country like India, the economic aspect is the biggest determiner. And which is also why, in a sense, we have not in, I mean, in India, it's it's not really some a movement that has caught on or has achieved too many significant gains. It's it's a it's a fledgling movement, mostly comprised of educated people who want to make a difference and want to do something. And yeah, that's where it is at right now. And if we really do want to make it a mass movement in India, it's it's all about getting people to understand how the climate crisis, the climate and ecological crisis, is endangering the food that you eat or the money that you get and we'd actually thought of a couple of campaigns that would directly connect things like unseasonal rainfall or too hot a summer or other manifestations of the crisis to how it's affecting people's ability to get jobs or eat food or earn money but that didn't materialize yet yeah and a lot of people who are within this movement like you said they're educated and um they're comparatively well off right they mm-hmm. they comprise of a specific part of society that is that has access to a lot more means a lot more resources and hence a lot of information which mm-hmm. means that you also are a part of a very privileged few but yeah. of course climate change and the economic impact of climate change will be felt by all of india So how do you then, within India, make this movement more inclusive and sort of go, a movement that goes beyond just, you know, the urban English-speaking elite of which we are a part of? And then how do you then apply that to the global north where the movement is still quite, you know, predominantly white? Yeah, so I think both the questions are essentially the same because what means white and privileged in the global north means upper class and privileged in the global south. So I'm essentially yeah. a straight white man in the Netherlands, equivalent to what I am here. So, okay, that's slightly an inter- difficult question because XR India 
we started off in July 2019, and we by October, when we had the second international rebellion, we participated in it with about 13 groups taking part, and that went pretty well. But beyond that, the biggest problem has been that even though it's majorly comprised of privileged people, educated people, it's still too few of us to actually to make it a sustainable movement. What happened yeah. in XR India was beyond October, all of us who were really working hard burnt out and we couldn't sustain it anymore. And so the movement kind of broke up. And by January, we only had about three or four local groups working, one of which was Mumbai. And I think Bangalore, Pune and Vizag were the other three. I'm not sure though. So the response is that for a movement like XR in a world today where a majority of all people are literally surviving on a day-to-day -day basis, you need privileged people who recognize their privilege and want to use it to get a movement off the ground. Yeah. And that is why Extinction Rebellion, both in the Northwest and in most of the countries in the South, is led by privileged people, where the level of privilege might be different between, say, India and Uganda or some other countries. But it's still, there's a difference in those who will be feeling majority of the impact and those who are starting such a movement. Now, in yeah. terms of actually creating a mass movement in India, in February, some of us who had been involved quite uh, heavily, we met up and we had a two-day workshop on what's the way forward. And honestly, the strategy right now is to, to take it slow, to recognize that in India, it's no longer about, it's not like we are meeting any deadlines. You know, we've already crossed the deadline. India is going to be one of the worst hit and a lot of suffering is going to happen. And so we need to take our time to really figure out what are our theories of change? You know, like how are we actually going to change the system in India such that slowly or like it's, it's a question that cannot be answered really right now because we haven't done the sort of research required. We are just a yeah. bunch of mostly kids from privileged backgrounds who are trying to make this happen. And right now we're even not doing that. Like XR India has sort of been on a pause for a couple of months now because we realized that, you know, you can't just start a movement out of the blue and import something from the West and just implement yeah. it. But we did think of some things that we realize are, at least amongst the group of us, 10 to 15 people that we want to, that we want to see XR India doing in the future. And as I mentioned earlier, one of the biggest things is to remove our focus from a sort of broader policy level, trying to get the government to act and instead sort of re-empowering the grassroots communities, people, even in our constitution, like decentralized decision-making was written into our constitution. It's just been watered down and washed away over yeah. years. So re-strengthening those structures, giving people the, not just like access to uh, physical resources to help them become more self-sustaining and stop depending on, you know, money or other parts of the toxic system that are depriving them of, of a good life, but also one of the biggest problems in India is not enough education slash information about things. And that's why yeah. people are so easily manipulated. So also figuring out how we can just make people more knowledgeable, because I don't know who said this, but I think it's one of the best things ever said. A well-informed group of people is most likely to make the best decision about something. A well-informed group of people who is affected by something is the most likely group of people to make the best decision about something. Yeah. And that's what is the objective of creating people's assemblies all around the world. So yeah. that's sort of the central tenet around which I think XR India is going to push forward once it does 
And along with that, there's going to be things like helping communities rediscover their regenerative cultures, helping communities rediscover, you know, like arts and other facets of life and not just not just spend their entire days, you know, struggling for survival and all of these big dreams and ideas that sound fantastical until you actually start implementing them. So yeah, much of it yeah. is in the air right now. Yeah. During your time in India as an environmental activist, how has your own conception of uh, sustainability, climate change, and the rest of it changed as opposed to when you were um, in the Netherlands? Okay, so I guess if we're strictly talking about India versus Netherlands, the biggest change has been of the expectation of victory. I've said this before also, but a lot of activists or a lot of people who mm. want to become activists think that, you know, we are going to become part of this fight and then we're going to change the world and that change is going to be tangible and yeah. then we're actually going to see the fruits of our labor and we're going to see the world changing and, you know, like people are going to suffer less or whatever. But what I have realized, and that that's also my perspective when I was in the Netherlands and I was, you know, going for gung-ho working. Like, yeah lot of time but i think the biggest realization that i've come that i've had since i've come to india is that like what we are embarking upon now is way beyond a single lifetime like this this is the beginning of societal collapse like coronavirus is it's not the end it's the beginning of the end and this is you know diseases like this are either this disease or other diseases or other calamities are only going to become more and more commonplace and going to start affecting society more and more and so it it is foolish, in my opinion, to think that, you know, we are going to change the world demonstrably in the near future or our actions or that we should get into activism with the expectation that, you know, we are going to achieve something very tangible, unless it's something very specific, like helping out with conservation or making sure yeah. that an oil company doesn't take over a village or things like that. In terms of broad scale systems change, which is the lens from which I view my activism, the biggest difference has been, okay, it's not going to happen in my lifetime. It's it's foolish to think that my actions right now are really going to, I'm going to see the fruits of them in, in any big way. And so, yeah, it's just about doing the best that I can to make a difference and hoping that it's going to lead to something better in the future. Yeah. Are there any practices you think that the global north xr global north can uh, benefit from or learn from xr global south or xr india specifically i the, i think the biggest thing so essentially extinction rebellion as a global movement is not decolonized yet there might be some national groups that are thinking more about it and of course global south groups also have to think about it because it's, it stares them much more in the face but as you were saying earlier, Extinction Rebellion in the global north is mostly a white people movement. And you do see a handful of people of color here and there, but that too only in the bigger groups. So I think what Extinction Rebellion in the global north needs to learn or understand from the south is that even within the movement, we are continuing to carry forward the same power hierarchies and imbalances that exist in the outside world. In, in the normative, capitalistic, whatever, patriarchal world. And and this is something that I too was guilty of in the beginning, where we, were th we thought, okay, you know, let's first get the engine moving. Let's focus on the climate and ecological emergency. And as we move along, we will make sure that justice becomes part of it. Or we say that in a third yeah. demand, 
which is that people's assemblies we ensure that you know people from all aspects of life are are included in these assemblies but that is as i've come to realize just a form of tokenism in my opinion and that if we really want to build a movement that deconstructs the systemic injustices and the remnants of colonialism that are evident in all the exar global south groups then in the very operations in the very so our first demand as people might not know or know is tell the truth we want yeah. governments and institutions to tell the truth about the climate and ecological crisis but we ourselves right now are not telling the truth as a global movement about the realities of the situation who it affects why the situation exists and who have been the historical perpetrators or you know stuff like that so i think the, the biggest thing that needs to be done is that xr itself needs to tell the complete truth about the toxic system that we live in and it needs to live the truth in the way it operates currently a part of the global support team and of course there as well it's mostly white people from the global north and yeah like that is one place where it is starting up where we are slowly starting to become more decolonized and including more people from the global south and providing more specific support to the global south groups but it's still it's it's a difficult battle because even the best intentioned activists you know just because they are not part of the group that has you know the, the oppressed groups it's just not easy for them to take charge on it there's also a lot of guilt that privilege this white guilt is a thing uh, but there's yeah. also guilt of being privileged where a lot of privileged people think oh i know this is a problem but i'm not the right person to solve it because i should not speak for another and yeah. i think that's slightly problematic because it kind of allows you to wash your hands sometimes or just not worry about it but yeah, yeah. it has to be a mix of empowering the right people to take up those positions so that they can be the ones making the decisions yeah i mean you don't want to get into the trope of where you're you're like oh you know i don't want to assume to speak for this underrepresented group but then also be like in like a savior mode you know that that that's something that's yeah. a, that's a fine line to tread for yeah. i think everyone and and especially when it comes to activism yeah for me what I've, the biggest thing i've realized is that it's all about power and control like the system that we are part of right now that has enabled this crisis our current coronavirus crisis to manifest in the way that it is is because of power imbalances and the way people mostly government leaders have completely forgotten what their job is as government leaders which is to protect their people yeah. and instead it has become entirely a power play and so if we want to solve this crisis the coronavirus crisis in particular but also the larger systems change game it needs to center around power we need to figure out how best to mitigate power and distribute it as widely as possible and that that's the new world in my opinion yeah i'm going to get to coronavirus in a minute but mm-hmm. to speak more about the government's role and like institutional bodies role and policy makers role in all of this is india doing enough to combat climate change and if it isn't what does xr think that they can do and do they see any sort of potential areas to perhaps work together where they can actually bring about policy changes yeah so again xr india is sort of a non-existent entity right now and whatever i speak will be from like some conversations that some of us have had but basically the indian government is of course i don't think any government in any 
maybe except like a couple like Costa Rica and the Bahamas, some countries that are actually facing extinction because of sea level rise. Yeah. No other government is actually doing enough to battle the climate and ecological crisis, especially the Indian government, although it is touted as one of the leaders in terms of our nationally determined contributions and yeah. our efforts to combat plastic waste and our increasing renewable energy capacity. So yeah, it's it's definitely not doing enough. And also we do feel that it cannot do enough, even if it wanted to, just by virtue of how broken the system is. Even if the government does take all the right decisions and you know it by magic, it passes all the right laws. I don't think our country has the capacity or the right implementation structures in place to achieve that. So as XR, the way in which we envision helping the government rather than being a disruptive force to it is to really figure out what are those parts of the government where we can effectively lobby. And one way which has been, which has proven to be successful in the past by other campaigners is targeting the local contractors, like the grassroots sort of political structures that exist, mm -hmm. because they are the ones who actually are accountable to their people in many cases. And if you are able to get them to understand the situation, they actually help. And also the civil service, the IES officers, the administrative branch of the Indian government, where they're actually well-educated, well-read, and mostly logical people who understand the crisis and are willing to work with you know, a movement that wants to mitigate for the crisis. So in terms of like policy or government-related activism or work, that's sort of where we are at right now. So Extinction Rebellion does definitely does not envision itself as a as a as a sole movement. Like that's what we tried out in the in our first phase where we were XR India and we were doing things as XR India. Yeah. What we realize now is that the only way anything is possible if we construct a movement of movements or a coalition of movements, all of which are fighting for similar things and figure out how to create an ecosystem that you know fights for systems change or that fights for political change or that fights to reestablish you know, direct democracy and things like that. So it's got to be a coalition. And if it is a coalition, then XR India is just one of many voices or just one of many ideas on how one this can- One of many movements essentially then. Yeah, one of many movements, but a movement that wants to bring together others, which has not yet been really possible in the history of this country. Yeah. So, yeah, that's where we're at. Okay, so now we have to get on to the COVID-19 crisis. I don't think any episode of mine is not going to cover this because it's being made during this pandemic. So a couple of days ago, I read this article on BBC where Extinction Rebellion in East Midlands, UK, allegedly posted a tweet where they uh, had this poster up which said that we are the virus and Corona is the cure. Now, mm -hmm. Extinction Rebellion Central or Extinction Rebellion proper, which is, you know, the movement that's based in London, said that they're not, this was a fake account and that they're not endorsing that viewpoint in any way or form. Yeah. But having said that, that narrative is still gaining popularity. And yeah. can you just talk about why that's problematic and what do the references to eco-fascism mean? Okay, I'll try. So I think the people who are probably jumping on this ship are the same ones who think that Population control is the solution to climate change or to the ecological crisis. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. and it's problematic because when we talk about the truth the truth is that the causes and the effects of the crisis are enormously disparate like if you talk about what is causing the climate crisis the emissions are produced by i think less than 30 companies like less than 30 companies produce a majority of the carbon emissions or enable a majority of the carbon emissions and when you wow. talk about consumption uh, okay i might not be completely right on that fact though on the number so you might need to fact check that but it's a tiny handful of companies that are responsible for a majority of fossil fuel emissions yeah. and also it's it's our lifestyles right it's the consumption of people that is creating so much demand for fossil fuels and other extractive activities and this is me- measured in the form of per capita carbon footprint is one way where mm-hmm. i think it's economists to measure what is the average amount of carbon used by one person of a country in a day or in a year and if you compare like the carbon footprint of a family in the us to a carbon footprint of a family in somalia for example it's a difference of like hundreds like a magnitude of hundreds is the difference yeah. so that's the biggest problem with this right if you if you calling if you saying coronavirus is wiping out humans and that is the problem then you're basically ignoring the fact that humans as a species are not the problem the actions of humans under a toxic system which differentiates power and which differentiates access to resources and there, there are, there's a humongous difference between quality of life that is the problem the reason yeah. why coronavirus happened okay i am not going to go into why it happened but like the reason why it's proliferated so fast and if you, even if you think about the people who've been carrying around the virus around the world it's people like us who have the privilege to travel in planes and who have the privilege to you know like visit all these hot spots where like these have become the virus has gone from person to person and spread yeah. it's yeah. it's mostly the privileged people so yeah, i would say that we are sort of just carrying it around and helping its proliferation yeah and then of course the disease attacks more the people who have weaker immune systems and you know like i think malnutrition people are more likely to have weaker immune systems so yeah even like it's actually the virus is rich people or yeah that's what i would say so okay. and when we talk about eco fascism i wouldn't call myself too informed on that because yeah i think i haven't read too much into it but what i would say is that calling saying that the coronavirus is so that saying that humans are the virus and coronavirus is removing the virus basically then becomes an excuse for governments that are fascist that are actually fascist or groups that are fascist to start using that excuse to actually carry out their activities and and sort so, of use this as an argument for their you know horrific policies like as a justification for their policies yeah exactly yeah. what do you think um like you know of course nobody knows the answer to this for sure but how do you think the way we live work consume is going to change after this pandemic is over and like specifically with respect to you know the environment and 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 sort of the environment is getting a break at this point you know quote unquote but how are our activities going to affect this once the lockdown is over and and once indeed the danger of the pandemic has gone by So like you said it's it's difficult to answer that mostly because i don't think this is gonna get over anytime soon mm-hmm. or even if at all yeah so that's the first thing but i in terms of how our lifestyles and all are going to change 
I can only say what I've heard from other people, from multiple other people, which is that one way, you know, like social distancing is going to become more of a norm. Like people are going to start, at least the privileged people are going to start caring more about the distance we keep, the hygiene we keep, how yeah. easily it might be to transmit diseases. You know, more people will stay home or more people will choose to work from home or companies will choose to allow people to work from home. And fewer people, I, I hope, one thing I hope is that it's also going to result to fewer people wanting to travel, at yeah. least for a while, until, you know, they are sure that they're not going to be able to contract it from other people. So I think uh, also, of course, there's going to be a big, there is already a big economic collapse happening and people are saying it's going to be much worse than the 2008 recession. So that also is going to make a difference in how we interact and, you know, what kind of jobs we get and how much we earn. And yeah, I think it's just, we can gesticulate many different things. I'm not certain if, of any real ways in which life's going to change, but life is going to change quite drastically. And also it's it's going to be different changes for different classes of people. Like I'm certain that the, the way in which life is going to change for you and me is going to be very different in the way life is going to change for those living in the jaws of Mumbai. Yeah. So yeah, I don't the, really have any answer. Yet. Yeah, no, 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 that's fine. So one of the things that has popped up a few times during our conversation is you know, like mental health issues. I mean, I, I think there there is uh, definitely this feeling of helplessness or anger that is sort of compounded by the current pandemic that we are in, in addition to, you know, the economy collapsing, the environment being in a certain way. How do you, as an activist, look after your mental health? And how do you sort of overcome the inertia of not caring or, or thinking that it won't make a difference. Right. Okay, so me personally, the way that I take care of my mental health is something that one of my teachers at university who, who has been dealing with climate anxiety or eco-anxiety for like years now told me is a CAA, I think, is the abbreviation, mm -hmm. where or AAC actually, ACA, yeah. So yeah, the first I was going to say CAA, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, a conversation for another day. <laughs> yeah. So the first step to taking care of your mental health as an activist of any sort is to accept that we are screwed. You know, that no matter what we do, we are only one person and we can only control what's within our control. So we have to accept that, that we are, we are just unlucky to have been born during a time where there's so much suffering and there's so much news that you can get access to all the suffering. Yeah, we have to accept that the system is toxic. It's very toxic. It's breaking down and we can only do what's within our control. So acceptance, I, I mean, that's what acceptance means for me. It might mean different things for different people, but accepting that we are in shit is the first step because for a lot of people, a lot of the panic comes from just not being able to accept that this is the reality because for, I think like our generation is probably one of the most depressed ever, or at least one that is depressed and knows it. Yeah, and at that least is one because, that is definitely struggling with a lot more uh, mental health issues than the preceding yeah. generation. Right. And I think a lot of that is also because when we were growing up, we were maybe, I wouldn't say sold, but we all had big dreams about how we want our lives to be that were based on 
you know, the TV or expectations that our parents had set or whatever else. And most of those lives are, I mean, before the virus, they were, for me, I would say they were quite unlikely, but now they're even more unlikely, like, you know, wanting to travel the world or wanting to have a family that, you know, that you could care about or having a certain career. So that is sort of the disillusionment, I think, that much of our generation faces or has faced or is going to face once they accept the reality, which is also, of course, many people are not able to accept. Yeah. So that is the first part. The second part is community. So this is something we've talked about before, but one of the only ways to feel better about a shitty situation is to have others around you who you trust, basically, who you, who know, who you know are going to be there for you or at least going to be there to listen to you or physically going to be around you when you need it or sometimes. So having a community of people that you feel comfortable around, I think comfort is the word, comfort and trust are the two words. That also helps because it's it's always much more difficult to face anything alone than it is with other people, whether yeah. we like it or not. So I think even for like people who like to be alone or even for introverts or you know anyone who would otherwise prefer doing things by themselves, community is is yeah is a necessary part of battling anxiety yeah. or depression around around climate crisis at least yeah. and I think things in general. And the third part is action. So I think. A lot of people feel that doing actions in a situation where it doesn't really matter is futile or, you know, like buying a reusable container for your food, it doesn't make a difference. So why do it? Action psychologically helps us feel better or helps us feel like we are doing what we can within our control. And even if we know it doesn't matter, it matters to our consciousness or to our soul. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, my mantra for battling with eco-anxiety is this, you know, got to accept it. You got to have a community that, that you feel comfortable in and got to do what you can within your control. And I think meditation is, is one way in which we can get out of the resignation and really appreciate the fact that we exist, that we have a consciousness and that we have been given certain privileges or blessings or health or whatever it might be that many others don't have. And so it's kind of, again, acknowledgement of, or gratefulness rather. I think meditation allows us not only to focus and to be more present, but also to be more grateful about our existence. Yeah. And that's what helps me. So I would say, yeah, that meditation really is, or it doesn't have to be meditation even, it can be just mindfulness in general. Yeah. So other ways, rather than just closing your eyes and deep breaths, there are other ways of meditating as well. But I have seen personally that that, even though it, it might be difficult to convince or to accept that it makes a difference, it does make a huge difference. Yeah. And you, you know once you try it out. Yeah. All right. I think that's great. I think that was a very honest and very hard-hitting conversation. So thank you so much for that. Thank you for having me. If you have any feedback, suggestions, requests, or simply just want to get in touch with us, then please do head over to our podcast website, 
we are available to flag and say hi to via Facebook, Instagram or email. Thank you and see you next week.